This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 63, recorded on August 31st, 2020. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always send me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Although, it might be better to send it to that guy over there, Christian at theaverageguy.tv. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Of course, Christian is at Board Whisper, theaverageguy.tv. Powered by Maple Grove Partners, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. MapleGrovePartners.com. Check out all the details. They have plans. Christian, still plans? As little as $10 for folks to get 10 on? Bucks. $10 to get on. And he'll, you can do just about anything, right? Yeah, we're, we're getting ready to launch some pretty exciting capabilities that your average provider wouldn't give you at that price point. So uh, stay tuned. Not at all. Not at all. So check it out. If you're interested in starting a site or you got any questions around that, visit MapleGrovePartners.com. Stay up to date with everything that we do live. Just follow us on Twitter. It's probably the best way to do it. Like we always do these shows last second. So follow me on Twitter at Jay Collison. And of course, we'd love to see you out here live as well. Christian is back. I think we podcasted at the end of April. Christian, not very many things have happened to you since nope. April, right? It's nope, been pretty normal. Normal. Uh, um, so moving. Move, you bought a house and moved. Four, four, four days after a, a, a global shut, well, at least a statewide shutdown, but pretty much every but you got it done, state right? shut down. Yeah. You got it done. Yeah, got it done. Was, that, was that pretty stressful? I was uh, definitely stressful trying to close the deal when there is an emergency stay-at-home order. That definitely puts a lot of uh, fear and uncertainty to the process for people on the other end of the table. But um, having a um, socially distant settlement is about as closely weird as a virtual settlement as it gets. So. I bet they've gotten better at it, though, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they've kind of figured it out. They're figuring it out. And you Does that not feel like it was four years ago at this point? It does. Honestly, um, I have learned that pandemic time uh, moves at very different paces from normal time. So uh, it's not six, bullet time. Like yeah. it's crazy. Six months of pandemic time feels like two years of your life. Yeah. Um, like February was 1980. Mm-hmm. Like I'm yep. like, what? I was talking, you know, I was in London in December. That feels like a hundred years ago. What did I do back in the time where humans went out to eat? <laughs> For for entertainment. Oh, for we got pleasure. some. We have some updates on that uh, uh, tonight. We'll get to those here in a few minutes. Uh, big congratulations to you as well, Christian, on getting married. Congratulations, Thank you. Thank uh, you. you guys. You're still together. Is that still a thing? I've passed the 30 day return policy, so as <laughs> far as we know, we'll be here for a while. Um, but it's going okay. You guys have figured out toothbrushes and yeah. sides of the bed and yeah. all those other kinds of things. You know, really none of those were contentious. I think probably the most contentious one is do you pre-rinse dishes before putting them in the oh, dishwasher? But oh, um, that, that is a good one. We, you know, I, yeah. I come from a background of fully hand washing your dishes and then putting them in the dishwasher. <laughs> And others think the dishwasher is where you just dump raw biomass into <laughs> your dishwasher and that it magically puts it into this, you know, clean, sparkly place. So yeah. we found this nice middle between the Good. two. It's very exciting. Good. Good. Our dishwasher does have a line into the garbage disposal just for those cases. It, we can At the Collison house, sometimes it's fully washed. Sometimes yeah. it's just, just kind of depends how much you've been drinking at dinner. Been drinking a lot. Dishes just somehow... 
end up in there if you're uh, if not. So uh, Brian in the chat room says pre rinse. I use paper plates. <laughs> See, that's the way to do it. That's that's low yield. Yeah, no, that's uh, especially during pandemic time. Um, you know, it has gotten harder to eat out. But have you guys? I'm I'm assuming you're getting some takeout. You're still doing some of those kind of things we've had to learn doing during this yeah, pandemic. I've experienced the heartthrob when Uber Eats has its first uh, outage during a pandemic. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would generally do you know takeout maybe once a week. Um, we eat out a lot less, a lot less. Yeah. I mean, occasionally we'll yeah. eat something outside that is like in a public area, but not, not very often. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny how it's changed patterns. Uh, mm -hmm. I think everybody immediately started doing since the last time we've podcasted, everybody's done some kind of home improvement project of some kind here, <laughs> here in Nebraska, it was fences. Like everybody got a new That's fence. The, all the trees got trimmed. Like it, all that pen or all that, um, you know, clean up. here in the U.S., all that, uh, what do we call that thing? The money they put out there. I, I'm escaping me now. The pandemic money. What did we call that thing? There's a name, didn't we? The, 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 the stimulus oh package. There we go. No, well, not the stimulus package. It was a, um, that was 2008. Okay. Well, um, whatever the $2,400 per couple, whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 200 yeah. Bucks. Um, seems like that went into fences and tree trimming uh, here, at least in, in Nebraska. We Sammy and I heard a lot of that going on. And um, so uh, John says audio only. Well, okay, interesting. So, uh, oh, you know what? I never changed. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you guys actually found this. I'll have to change this when um, most people must have got it on YouTube. I bet on the live page I never changed the uh, the – the video. So I'll do uh, it, Christian, while you're talking. So very good. if you're listening, John, if you're listening to the audio, I'll get the video changed uh, here in a second to get it done. Christian, um, so six months, I'm just going to call it. We're six months into this as we think about, uh, I mean, it's it's changed. We, we've talked about that. It's changed a lot of things is from eating out to uh, how we commute. Today, uh, today, I went in at noon and worked till four and there was no traffic. Like it has reset traffic for me in a, in a lot of ways. Um, as we think about it from a cybersecurity perspective, have you seen any transitions? Have you seen any things change? Certainly it seemed like the bad guys picked up the pace on, on things, but how about from your opinion and I'll change the live page while you're talking. Yeah. I mean, honestly, from, from where we talked about this when we were about one month in um, on our last show to the pandemic and a lot of the trends that we first started talking about, we suspected might be long-term or permanent trends. And I, I think there's definitely now hindsight being 2020, not only is that correct, but it seems that there are permanent, both permanent changes happening and acceleration of existing changes happening. And, and that's actually one of the areas that I find more interesting about this is just how quickly um, we seem to be accelerating the cybersecurity implementation horizon for Fortune 500, the enterprise, et cetera. Um, most C-level executives would not be um, maybe as far along in their implementation plans in a pre-pandemic world as they are currently. And I think a lot of that is driven by the need to be in the best mode of operation possible when the majority of your workforce is from home, right? If you think about how the enterprise is set up, like, yeah, everyone's familiar with the concept of a VPN, right? But 
when those systems are designed and built in the enterprise, they usually anticipate maybe, I don't know, 10 to 20% of the workforce at a given time being on your VPN. Now what happens when the default is 90% of your people are on a VPN at a given time and only 10% are in the office. And all of a sudden, your traffic shape looks completely different. The types of devices you need to run your network looks somewhat different. Where is your capacity? Um, so this has started stirring you know, a bunch of different questions, not just in the kind of practical mundane, like how do I scale my VPN, but how do I scale my cybersecurity, right? Now I'm being asked as a C-level executive or as an organization to secure my enterprise um, from thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of homes scattered about coming into a connected network. Um, and I think when we compare the security models of what it's like thinking about an organization predominantly on site versus an organization predominantly remote, we're actually finding that some of the key trends and what would enable a business to be successful and, and, and transform itself digitally are just accelerating way faster than they would have had this not been the mode of coming into work every day. I've heard something like we increased the this this ability, we accelerated it by like four or five or six years, something like that. In other words, this kind of forced everybody to bend their plan. But this, for a lot of organizations, this kind of forced them to really jam it in pretty quickly. Do you see any consequences to that, to the, to the velocity question? In other words, to cut corners, I'm not saying they did, mm -hmm. but it, it would cause, I think, sometimes some folks to maybe want to accelerate it and put it in faster than there's time to test it and check it. Do you think that's going to have any ramifications here in the next couple of years? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good question. I think definitely um, speed of business is always critical and individuals are always going to try and optimize on doing the right thing in the short term while planning for the long term. I think that's a normal human tendency. I don't see any of the things that are being proposed, though, as being kind of these new newfangled ideas that have big risks of going wrong, right? A lot of the technologies that we're talking about accelerating and putting in the hands of a business at scale are things that have been around for years, but haven't gotten the budgets or the people prioritized to do them. So it's not like it's a secret necessarily about how to go about it, or it's not like there's a huge lack of information in order for companies to be able to implement these things correctly, or just procure them, right? If I have the budget to. Um, and I think now that we're seeing, you know, a reallocation and a reprioritization of how businesses are spending their money, um, all of a sudden there's money there that may, may have not been there before for an organization to spend in these areas. Um, and certainly if there's a larger revenue stream and a larger opportunity to invest, um, those investments are accelerating the development and implementation cycle for companies. Christian, most organizations had some type, some type type of thing ready, and maybe it wasn't rolled out completely for everybody. Was it a matter, do you think, of just scaling up? In other words, taking more of what already existed, or do you think there were some cases where it had to start from the ground, from ground zero? Both, for sure. I mean, for example, um, I, you know, VPN would be a, a trivial but classic example where VPNs have been around for probably well over a decade, uh, if not longer, in terms of regular use. And um, in that case, it's an exercise of scaling. 
Um, and sometimes it's not scaling your infrastructure. It's teaching your employees how to scale their infrastructure, right? Like if you've been on that DSL plan for however long, like maybe it's time to pay for the broadband or maybe it's time for your employer to um, pay for a portion of your internet, similar to how they do for cell phones, right? Like a lot of employers will reimburse your cell phone usage because oftentimes you're not issued a company phone, but you're always taking these work calls on your cell phone, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. So maybe maybe your own local infrastructure becomes part of that dialogue. Um, but then there's other things that are not so much like that, right? Like if you were a slow adopter to MFA, chances are it's not like you're just going from a limited trial group to rolling out this broad MFA, right? You're probably behind the curve now saying, hey, I want to catch up. I have the funds to, or there's a mandate to, because I've never had this many people trying to work from outside the what we consider to be the secure boundary. Um, and all of a sudden, that's where there's a real opportunity for potential employee pain um, if you can't manage and handle that rollout correctly. We had rolled out you know, two factor a while ago as an organization and being able to, you know, we, we've been adopting it pretty well. Um, of course, now we've got some new technologies in Windows Hello that allows us to do screen or, and we don't have a lot of touch screens, so we're not doing a lot of that, but, you know, a, a camera or a pin or some of those uh, features that come in, that's actually been rolled out during this time, which has been great. I mean, it's been very, very convenient to be able to use the camera and a, combined with a pin to be able to log in and not have to remember a long password. Um, although it, I'm doing kind of a hybrid environment. So I have my work equipment at home. That's one way of logging in. And then I have the studio equipment here that I use for podcasting and other things for work that is coming in on the web. And that requires kind of a different kind of authentication. Do you think there's, there's, we may be running, I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of, um, Herky jerky to use that technical term in between systems and it works for me. Mm -hmm. But do you think going home caused some disturbance in the force for some people at work? And and maybe we're through it by now. But but what's your feeling on that as far as that maybe that um, the 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 two FA uh, um, you know struggling with it? Just all the things we have to do after now four months, the endurance on it's pretty tough. Yeah, it definitely depends where you're coming from, right? I mean, I've been using MFA for years in my job because that's an industry that demands it. But if that's something that's new for your area, um, perhaps there's either a bigger barrier to entry or a, a disturbance in your routine. But I think the disturbance is a short-term trend, right? In the short term, you're going to have problems. But if you've done it correctly and you've put the right user education out there and the right rollout, even if you have short-term issues, the long-term should be pretty clear that this is going to be an advantage, right? So um, I would I would not be surprised if businesses took that short-term trade-off of, hey, we weren't quite ready to roll this out, but let's get it out there now and let's find the pain points early so that we're not further behind in something that's accelerating across the across the world really um and that's one of the aspects that i find really interesting about this whole thing is that you know to me mfa is boring in the sense that it is an old idea it's not something new security folks and practitioners have been saying for years go implement and do mfa um, and now that there's actually in, like broad interest and in suddenly everyone's got to do MFA, well, it's, it's 
interesting to compare implementations, right? What's good MFA versus great MFA? Um, and how are organizations starting to transform their thinking around what it means to deploy commonplace security paradigms in their network? And this is something that I think is really driving one of the big trends in cybersecurity is this concept of zero trust, right? Like if you're in the C-suite or otherwise, and you're talking about security, you know, a broad majority of your calls, you're going to hear zero trust, zero trust, zero trust. It's repeated. And, and maybe a lot of folks who aren't in those calls or environments would be like, well, what's that? Right. But inherently security by default, whether it's physical, physical security, digital security, et cetera, operates off of a fundamental platform of trust, right? And the old adage has been, you know, if there's no trust, there's no security. Like eventually you have to trust something is what we have said as an enterprise for, you know, the 40 years we've been attempting to do computing in some type of enterprise fashion. And a lot of folks have said, you know, wait a second, this model is kind of broken. We've been throwing more and more security tooling and otherwise at the problem and doing it more the traditional way. And yet our data breaches keep getting bigger and bigger and the fallout and the blast radius keeps getting bigger and bigger. So what's going on? Um, we've seen companies adopt better practices. We've seen businesses, you know, start to follow guidance more regularly. And yet, you know, we have these diametrically opposed trends. And one of the main stipulations of zero trust really the definition of it is it's a it's a different way of thinking first and foremost right zero trust is not a product it's a it's a mindset now a marketer might try and tell you that zero trust is a product because they're going to beat you over the head with enterprise licenses to buy whatever their zero trust xyz is but zero trust is predominantly a way of thinking about security right and it's focused on how do you protect your resources both on prem and off-prem in a way that you're never implicitly granting or assuming trust. Everything is continuously evaluated and you have to prove who you are and what you say you are every single step of the way. Now, apply it to a common case scenario like MFA, right? Where um, maybe I'm a company or a new organization um, that's just rolling out MFA. And why do I wanna roll out MFA? Well, a default answer might be, you know, the default security answer as well, because a password in and of itself is insecure, right? With the second factor, I can be more reasonably confident that um, if that credential were to be compromised, the, the login in and of itself would still have some credibility, right? But if I think about it from a zero trust perspective, the answer is quite different. It's actually, uh, yeah, it has something to do with the number of factors, but that's the MFA part of the definition. The zero trust part of the definition is I have to provide physical presence in a virtual environment, or I have to provide some type of tangible validation that is done, quote, continuously and repeatedly, right? So every time I log into a website, I'm re-going through that process. And it's not something like a pin. And this is where we talk about good MFA versus great MFA, right? Good MFA can give you a second factor great MFA can move you towards zero trust security. And when you look at an example of great MFA, it's hardware based. I have to touch a thing, right? It's not like 
if someone fishes me and asks me for my MFA pin, I'm going to give that to them over the phone or I'm going to, no, no one's going to pack up their hardware token and mail it to someone unless for legitimate purposes, they want to be an insider threat. Um, and when you think about it from that perspective, okay, the barrier to entry of saying who you are has changed. But there's other examples all throughout digital security today where implied trust has been baked and baked and baked into the layers of the cake, right? When I install a new driver on Windows and I get that CD from the manufacturer, there's a certificate on that CD that was signed by some digital authority that says, I, as the authority, trust this driver and trust really this publisher to do the right thing. And then you go and load that CD on your computer and your computer has a set of trust stores already loaded on it and it sees that has a valid signature. And all of a sudden you get a nice green check mark in Windows that says, hey, you should install this thing, right? At no point um, was there any exchange or validation with me as the user installing that driver that that is like an authenticated and authorized action, right? The only authorization there that occurred was that I had some type of administrator privilege on the box supposedly to install that driver. But there was no process by which I received that CD and was able to A, inspect the trust for myself, B, authenticate the person who wants to do something with my machine by way of installing this thing in a uh, presence, point of presence type of, of manner um, and see, validate the outcome of it after it has been installed and deployed in my box. Um, similar to how, you know, certificate architecture in general is very much of the model of I'm going to do a handshake. Folks are going to trust or not trust certificates involved. Um, this is prone to man-in-the-middle attacks, key, um, you know, smuggling someone's private key, impersonation, the whole nine yards. Uh, but nowhere in that process have we gotten away from these inherent things being baked in where once I'm authenticated on system A, I have this token that I get to follow around the system B, C, D, and E, and the next thing you know is like this one authentication action that I did 48 hours ago is somehow still the reason why I'm allowed to use a computer. Um, I can keep giving examples all night long. I'm probably going to give one more. So another one is I steal a laptop from you as an employee. You left it at a park bench, et cetera. And that laptop is already logged in. It's in a logged in state um, and it's on the corporate network. Great. So what did I have to do? Uh, and maybe we'll just say there's some four digit pin securing it. Right. And like, I socially engineered this person separately. I know what their birthday is. I know that X percentage of Americans use their birthday as their pin or their wedding anniversary or whatever. Right. Yeah. What, how could you say that? Um, so I use this, you know, little pin I'm on this laptop and beautiful. The computer is authenticated to the network, right? The computer checks out great. It has all the valid certs because it came from the company. It has all the serial numbers. It's compliant and it's in the, the IT system is meeting all of its checks for security and software monitoring and otherwise, but the computer did zero things to validate that I am the employee that's assigned to that machine, right? That's a classic example of there was an implicit trust and the security model was that I'm assuming the person behind this thing is the person that the laptop is assigned to, right? Yeah, and and I, the, 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 but that model starts at the very beginning and gives deep, right. deep trust going exactly. forward to all those systems, right? There's, right. There's so, a, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's like you, you get this very deep trust kind of packaged up to like a birthday present. And then, you know, I, where does that revalidation occur? Right. It's not like someone shipping you a laptop every day and that old laptop is being sent back to your company. Um, so the, what I call continuous authentication and authorization is really important. Um, even more important, I think, and where the industry is moving towards is this concept of a um, a kind of reason-based authentication where, um, yeah, I trust you as an employee on an or ordinary day-to-day -day basis, but when you want to do something special, like I need to know why it is you want to do something special. And it's not because I don't trust that there's a malicious reason, but like in addition to me actually doing some deep authentication that it's you that really wants to do this. And this is, you know, what you want to do. I want to know why it is you want to do it. And most security organizations, that's like, we, we are really good at saying who done it and when did they do it and where did they do it? And how do they do it? But for trusted people, we never ask, why are you doing it? Because the default answer is, well, they're trusted. They must know what they're doing. This is something that, you know, they are authorized to do. Go for it. But what a reason-based authorization gives you is something much deeper because now your organization across the spectrum has visibility into a very privileged action. And so, for anyone listening to the show, I, it probably was not like this huge secret that uh, Twitter had this fantastical breach, I, you know, and I wouldn't really call it a breach. It was just, it, it was typical, like weird security assumptions gone wrong where, um, you know, Joe Biden and all these big figures are, are tweeting this Bitcoin scam and turns out to be a teenager who fishes and scams Twitter employees into giving access to this control panel that lets them do this thing. And then it gets to another thing. Next thing you know, it's like, it, it's a classic social engineering with a little bit of insider. And, you know, it looked like there was an actual, I mean, honestly, I'm sitting here watching this thing in real time. I'm talking to a bunch of security engineers as we're watching in real time, Twitter get taken by storm by this idiotic Bitcoin scam. And first being amazed how anyone could, fall into that scam right to my mind it was just like totally cannot believe that they're if you're smart enough to use bitcoin or if you're <laughs> technically savvy enough to use bitcoin but somehow stupid enough to pay into it like i'm i'm starting to come up with sub theories at this point of like maybe they like put five dollars in because they want to see where the money goes and i just the mm. whole thing was so bizarre yeah. um but you know it comes back to uh humorously this concept of zero trust where it's like well um, clearly there were mechanisms where in a really good social fishing scenario, the presence or the authentication aspect of their company had some flaws in it, not necessarily in the technology or the implementation of it, but the policy aspects of how they use that technology. And I think one of the big things that is going to be increasingly popular across the enterprise is a concept of reason-based um, authorization, right? Let's say a legitimate trusted user inside Twitter had a legitimate reason to post to Elon Musk's Twitter feed. That should be setting off 
all kinds of alarm bells like you wouldn't believe. Like it should automatically be cutting it, you know, some type of ticket or notice to the security operations team at Twitter saying this user is doing this action under this thing. And it's not just saying what it is. It's not just reading the news that user X did this thing. It's that in order for user X to do this thing, they need to write and provide justification. And if the justification or the artifact that they present to the system is nonsense, when that thing gets cut to security and they see, wait a second, the thing doesn't like the justification or the artifact doesn't make sense. And that's like something you should be able to identify in like 10 to 30 seconds tops, right? If you see that's bogus, you immediately know where to start going to shut down the problem. One of the things that amazed me about this Twitter breach was the reason why a lot of us thought something really bad had happened to the technology stack itself was A, how many people were impacted and B, how long it took Twitter to get, get it together. I mean, it was maybe two plus hours watching this thing just death spiral and it took them... I think over an hour and a half to go to read only for select users, which my God, thank you. Like I, I would have done that in five minutes. I mean, maybe it's the end of the world from a business perspective for people to think, Oh my gosh, people can't like write their tweets. But I would, I, I would have totally thought the right move there is if you don't know what's going on, like in minute marker one, make all Twitter verified accounts lose the right ability. So at least you preserve the integrity of the accounts. And if you really don't know what's going on, at least you have time now to go figure out what's going on, right? Um, sounds like eventually someone got that memo over there because it happened. Um, but more broadly interesting to me is this concept of it's not immediately clear in much of what you read online about this event, why it took them so long to to thread the needle. And I'm not saying thread it all the way back to the team that did the hacking and yada, yada. I'm saying specifically thread it back to what employee credentials were the source of the compromise and what was the capability of the tool being used to make those posts. Like that should not have been a mystery for that long in the game. And as a, as a outside security observer looking on the inside, it very much seemed like that's what was going on. Yeah, Interesting. So and to think that so as a as an owner of an account that you know I, I appreciate that like hey I'm almost the two factor on that thing in mm -hmm. in that I should almost be able to say hey I physically if it's going to happen yeah. to my account and it's not going to be me you need mm -hmm. to provide some kind of physical proof that yeah. it's that right I'm in in it, it's interesting because you know from a social media perspective this this the the networks have always kind of said, we got this mm -hmm. like, Hey, no, 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 we got this. It's security worse. They've, they locked the front door, but when the back door was left open, people could, could just walk in and do whatever they wanted. And I love that idea. Like, Hey, you know, no, I think as users, we should actually ask, like, why are you updating? Why is a user who's not me updating my account? That doesn't happen very often. Like, yeah. it's not like we have Twitter going in and doing that for people, right? right. And maybe there's, there, maybe there's an implications in the API or that, that the ability to do that comes in on a third party. And so yeah. that's going to get spoofed, right? I get all that. But um, it's certainly one of those. I, it, it totally makes sense, especially if we're going to have these accounts 
that are going to be able to move nations. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're like, ooh, yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Considering, you know, one one country in the world has a leader who uses that platform pretty right. specifically right. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> right. When president X pre- tweets to President Y. Like, that's not a situation you want to be in as, you know, someone yeah. playing both yeah. sides no, of the no, aisle no. there. Right. I, I thought of it that way. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, that particular event speaks to several things, right? Like that particular thread, I could probably spend a whole nother show on of just like, what, what are all the Pandora's boxes that were opened by realizing that something as mundane seeming as Twitter now has these very powerful mechanisms associated with it? Because if you can do something like impersonate a verified account with, you know, tens of millions of, of followers, uh, what does that mean when people take that as truth, right? Or as some type of ground truth for, for, for their daily lives. Um, and then what types of operational risks does that bring up when people like actually act on what um, a president tweets, right? Yeah. So um, there were well, just, but, but let me, let me throw this in Christian. You know, I'm sure that tech who g- granted the access or whatever had, had multi-factor mm-hmm. themselves to get in. Like, we, we even think about securing those like, okay, we need to make sure no one hacks their accounts, but how do we stop the willing and in this case fooled where the, or the human breaks down? We've got to have that almost that multi-factor when you talk about reason yeah. to start thinking through, right? Of like, okay, this doesn't make any sense that a dashboard user, a super user, which in a lot of cases has rights to everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, you start saying mm, that doesn't look like what a super user normally would do. That should, like you said, that should set off some warning lights. So it's it's funny. One of the first things when I was thinking that Twitter had a bad implementation somewhere, one of the first things that came to mind was maybe they implemented MFA badly somewhere, right? Because if only verified accounts are being impacted by this, like what's the most likely account on Twitter to have MFA online? It's people who are managing these big portfolio accounts, right. For their, for their client. Um, so yeah, I suspect that, you know, we can say that this employee had MFA or this or that or the other thing. The problem is that we're not consistent about where those things are applied. Like I'll give a classic bypass example. Um, this Twitter employee, let's say he had state of the art MFA and, um, I'm the teenager that wants to fish this employee and I've fished this employee to the point where I've said, you know, please share with me a remote desktop session so I can, you know, help you with your computer problem. Let's just very naive contrived example, right? I convince you that for some reason I'm from your IT department and I need to get on your computer because there's an issue. Um, In a, broken zero trust model, you as the employee sitting at that computer would present your MFA to the computer where you're sitting and then turn to that employee from IT and say, go ahead, have at it. A correct implementation of zero trust would require all participating entities to have zero trust. And so the model here in this contrived scenario is already broken. Why? Because the IT person didn't have to MFA with the service to say that he's an authenticated person with a remote desktop privilege. So right there, 
um, I'm using some inherited trust or authorization that exists locally at that remote computer. And I'm just the keyboard and mouse guy over here taking advantage of all of those presence things that were validated. Now, if there was as equally strong zero trust in this model implemented on the remote desktop endpoint as there was on the service endpoint where this customer was using the super tool, um, it would have been a lot harder to either A, um, convince the service that you have a right to do that remote activity. Um, and even if you do, right, a perfect world would say, you have the remote access credential, you've been validated with your MFA or your strong point of presence. This other guy over here has validated him his MFA saying that he's waiting for you to receive the remote desktop. And then no matter what, whether it's a guy from remote or the guy locally, when that person goes to use the control panel, MFA again, because it's a highly privileged action. If it reaches a new tier of privilege that's greater than just, I'm an employee using my desktop at this company, there should be like 20 people that get notified that, hey, so-and-so just opened this control panel on this date stamp before they did a thing, right? Just like a page, an alert that says this person's in this system. And there's a run book somewhere in the company that says you should never need to be in this system unless X, Y, or Z happens. And these 20 people are going, X didn't happen, Y didn't happen, Z or didn't happen, and they're picking up their phone and immediately disabling that credential. I mean, that's an example of how zero trust and reason-based authorization would have stopped something like this, like flat in its tracks. Now, is it easy to do? No. Is it super practical and, and cost ineffective to do? No. Like it takes detailed thinking about where are those entry points where you need humans to be putting their stamp on things and tying this all the way back to what I guess this show is supposed to be about. COVID has accelerated that trend dramatically because now all of a sudden where people are going to, you know, it's like a lot of people who come into work in the day, they have to show their badge to someone, a security guard, a turnstile, whatever, right? Now everyone's working from home, right? What is that equivalent mechanism where they're checking in, doing their rubber stamps? And so as people's thinking are evolving about, wow, I really need to shift and move my approach on how to support people from home, somehow for the good, it has also driven that conversation of we need to get to zero trust like way quicker because the surface area of where people are coming into to interact with the network, it could be remote desktop, it could be VPN, it could be some type of remote mail application, it could be your cell phone doing instant message. I mean, it could be any number of interfaces where, yeah, people used to use these 10 to 20% of the time, now they're dominating. Mm -hmm. And in addition, you're still running your entire set of infrastructure because you know there's people who are gonna be going in the office to support more critical functions. So now you're supporting two domains full-time and you need the investment, the resources, and the ability to secure that second new domain as if it was that first domain. And in the process of doing that, I think we've also started to just make improvements to both domains at once. It's to me, it's not like, oh, we're going to focus on remote, you know, employee security today. And then next week we're going to focus on in the office security. No, it has to be that holistic picture. Yeah. It has to be both. We've been upgrading both. Um, you know, I think that hello for me, it's now a picture of my face and a pin together has to be done together. It, it's kind of that authentication you would see me in the building, right? I mm -hmm. never really thought of it until you said it that way. Um, Christian, right after the last time we did a podcast, I thought I had a breach here on the Collison network. 
because all of a sudden terabytes were leaving. I don't think we talked about this. Terabytes were leaving my network like in days worth. And I thought, oh my gosh, somebody's hacked in and got it. And it, and eventually through an audit, I found out, no, I had just put a new drive on a box and it's it. Now the drive is expecting was gone. So it couldn't write to that drive, but it sure tried. And so it did three solid backups, two terabytes each trying to, to write to that drive. Mine, meanwhile, bringing the data in from Backblaze, that cost me a little bit of money to get that done three times. The point was I started reviewing like, okay, who has access to what in my own network? Like if someone did breach the Wi-Fi and got in here, what would they see? So I set up a laptop that had no privileges. It was, you know, I got a, a um, I got a, a Linux um, USB key, turned it on and act like, okay, I know the password to my own network. What do I have access to? It was super scary. <laughs> like how much trust I had set up and embedded that trust in various systems to even just a single password. Like let's not even say 2FA. I had made... For convenience sake, I had made those things all accessible inside my network, not necessarily thinking about what if or running that scenario. What if someone does breach it through the Wi-Fi? That's the most likely scenario, just to be honest. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come in the house and plug in. They're going to breach the Wi-Fi, right? That's yep. the way it's going to work. So it got it started getting me thinking, oh, like, you know, and and I'm not I'm not NASA and I'm not the US government, but I still don't want anybody stealing my yeah. data, right? Yeah. Um, is there any chance just at a personal level as we think, I mean, most who listen to this podcast are kind of thinking about their own network. Would I have any chance to implement something more than just, a, you know, an embedded password that's, that allows me to go from one box to the other and see the data on all these it, as a consumer, do I have any chance at, at, at zero trust? I think it's, it's sadly, it's, it's fragmented, right? It's not really well integrated. And that's where you see zero trust become a difficult thing to implement as a average guy in a home environment is that you really need to have that understanding of how all the different security pieces yeah. would integrate and play with each other. A lot of the consumer based devices, they're good at securing that one thing and doing it in a way that's accessible or understandable. But you as the consumer might not understand what that guidance is in relation to the forest of other things that consumerism culture is well, throwing the, at you. The consumer is a one FA in most cases. It's yes. a password, right? Correct. Now, yeah. I mean, you can, you can think about like basic evolutions in Wi-Fi security besides just the standards themselves of encryption um, where most people are in some form of WPA2, maybe WPA3 if you're really spicy, but for the most part, like, standard access point puts out a nice 2g or 5g signal um some more interesting ways of signing in are uh person a has their iphone open person b has their iphone open person b is already on the network uh and person a is like please let me on and person b gets this notice that so and so would like to be on your network and no password is talked about right. nothing is communicated right. it's right. yes or no Right. And like, at least that's kind of interesting because now a human is involved in the authorization, which to me um, is a narrowly limited consumerism concept of uh, reason-based authorization with a lot of caveats that I won't go into detail. Um, more interesting to me is this concept of 
um, not only do you enter the password for any device that's coming on the network, but like you as the quote unquote administrator are sitting there on the phone with your two factor. And before someone's allowed to connect, you have to hit a little ping, yes or no, which you are seeing on some of the newer like mesh mesh wi-fi is the like hot thing of of coronavirus because everyone's got to upgrade to mesh everyone's got to have the wi-fi uh the low buffer bloat um the whole nine yards so you'll see a lot of these i'm trying to figure out how to get wi-fi on my deck exactly yes i want to work out there right you want to get on your deck you want to get right cool that means i'm blasting Um, a wi-fi signal mm -hmm. out to my neighborhood now Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and and you can see the problems of where zero trust starts to make a lot of sense, right? Because am I as a CISO going to convince you, home user X, to put the level of security on your Wi-Fi access point, your television, your kid's iPad, the school computer? Like there's all these things that you just, you're not going to have complete control over from a policy standpoint, from a what's running on that thing. Um, and yet, if any one of those devices is weak, and I've let you, the employee, go home and put my corporate laptop on your home network, right? Like, okay, there's an asset sitting out there as the front door to something that otherwise is way less secure than it would be if that laptop was sitting inside the office building. What's next, right? Well, maybe it's not that he hacked the VPN, but maybe it's that the computer is running connected to the VPN when I hack. And maybe it's I I hack the remote desktop or I somehow get physical access to it. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, like Joe, the plumber who came over to fix this thing really was a hacker and he's already on this privileged device without doing much of anything in the way of authentication. Um, And so that's where if zero trust is really working for your organization, it's not that you don't care what your employee's home network looks like, but reasonably you don't, you shouldn't need to care because if your zero trust perimeter is successfully built and has the right checkpoints at every step of the process inside your umbrella of, of, because every entry point is right. the same level of security, um, right? It's it's not that it is the same level, right? Because we just talked about like having those highly privileged actions where you might need to go up to the next level. But it's that every entry point does authorization or does some type of yeah. who are you? Like it's it's the word continuous that makes zero trust happen, right? It's that you're not putting that trust on a long timeline of, of ability. And it's that you're doing it consistently everywhere you go, as opposed to just, well, now that I'm on system A, it's good for systems A through F. Um, and it's not until I go to system G that I would expect something different, right? Christian, what about some monitoring? Are we doing this yet? Where, in other words, there's certain things that I do every day that 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 are part of my job. And if I start doing things like the system would know if I'm in a new area, even let's say the file structure, mm-hmm. I'm in a new area. I don't normally go there. Like, you know, uh, almost a consensus model where if some of those kinds of things start happening, people are like, hey, you're th- these things are being accessed. Is this okay? Are you okay with that? Even the owners of those files, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a sense, in, in a lot of way, like the blockchain works, right? Where it says, hey, we're going to have a whole bunch of people. You don't all have to agree, but we need to have a consensus on this thing to access. And it wouldn't happen every time, but only when my account begins to do something unusual. And that unusual is tracked by the system because it kind of 
every day it's kind of knowing where I go and what I do on a normal basis. Are we doing any of that yet? I mean, certainly uh, data is king, right? And I think there's ample opportunities to talk about how metrics, monitoring, machine learning methods um, can be helpful in those types of scenarios. I don't think they're all encompassing or mature enough yet, though, to catch 100% of those cases. And so where automated systems can't help, reason-based authorization can, um, because you're putting an independent body that is also supposedly trusted into the mix in something that they inherently don't have an interest in, right? Like trust breaks down if if people have um, are approaching their end state goal from a same origin of bias, right? So if two people are on the same service team, they have the same origin of bias. If one person's on a service team A and another person's on SecOps team B, and they never talk or have normal interactions with this person, and you, Jim, for the first time are in some weird part of your file system, it's not asking Jim if he's okay being there or if he thinks he's supposed to be there. It's asking SecOps person B, is Jim supposed to be there? And when SecOps person B can't answer that question for himself, he reaches out to person A and says, hmm, this seems wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. And if your answer doesn't pass the smell test, the access goes away until it should pass the smell test. Um, And that way, the responsibility model isn't on any single person, which I think is one of the biggest ways that we need to think about solving insider threat, which is a related but different topic. Um, But it stops the... um, where, where the computer falls short in making that automatic determination, which I think is going to be the case for a long time, um, the, the, the computer is aiding in surfacing the data, the methods, and the automation. Really, the automation is key um, to not making it a painful process. Mm-hmm. And I think while the data is helpful in the long-term vision of having computers completely remove the task for humans automation is what keeps it from being painful in the short term while those techniques aren't um, perfectly vetted out yet. It's it's almost like having uh, your own personal C-3PO who's giving you the odds of things like, hey, there's a 75% chance what he's doing is not or she is doing is, is not the right thing because I'm seeing these things in the process, right? constantly it may never be a hundred percent but letting someone else know like hey this just doesn't look right but the system saying that the system and it's not accusing anyone it's just kind of earlier warning that's more and it doesn't even need to necessarily be one of those you know we always kind of think of uh, the drop dead ones like okay shut it down now more like hey there's a probability that this doesn't look right we should probably you know someone should spend a little bit of time looking at this or does it get an approval um, as it goes? I, I, I think there's some ability there now with what we have to be able to do some of those kind of things. I'm sure there are some security models where that probably works. Yeah. Uh, and and I don't think there's any one um, answer. For, and this is, this is kind of where the acceleration is interesting because everyone's moving in that general tr- in a general trend or a general direction, but there's no one size fits all security. I'm right. I'm I'm pretty adamantly convinced of that, right? Yeah. Like the the yeah. needs of a 
you know, multi-corp of 500,000 employees are not going to be the security needs of a five-person startup. Um, and so I think the scale factor is immensely important in measuring that as well. I sent an email today that uh, was part of a group email that uh, had IBC seats and folks in it. And one of the folks who, you know, put my email address in the, in the you know, sent it to me and then BCC'd a bunch of people on it. And one of those, I was, I was super happy. One of those people I sent it to, sent it to their supervisor and said, is this real? And that's that's awesome because that typically would look like a spoofed email mm-hmm. uh, sent that way. And uh, I probably sent it to 25 people and I only heard from one. So, you know, you kind of go, uh, that's kind of where, you know, well, in, in that scenario, maybe even the email system begins to take a look and say, Definitely. Hey, there's a probability. I'm not saying this is spam, but there's a probability, or I'm not saying this is this is phishing or spear, whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's a probability it is. We 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 sometimes, you know, I've I've got spam filters where the stuff goes, but um, it it may be handy in the future to have have some a little more intelligence with me. Give me some data. Like, what's the pro- what's the probability of this thing? Yeah. Um, and um, part of what Microsoft recently did a, a study during the pandemic of how it's changing the, the kind of future of cybersecurity, a, a great article out on Tech Republic on this and um, ranked by the top five things that organizations are looking at or making investment decisions in right now was MFA, endpoint device protections, anti-phishing tools, VPN, and end-user security education. So clearly the anti-phishing is pretty pertinent because there's all sorts of stuff in rumor wheel and otherwise that can be in the no-spin zone when talking about um, living in a uh, pandemic reality. So I think it's not surprising to me that we would look at phishing as a... um, even more serious threat in the face of, of COVID. Yeah. No, right on. What else? Anything else that we didn't cover during that, that time? Anything in the notes? No, I mean, I, I, I think the takeaway that I hope listeners hear is that zero trust, number one, is not a product. It's a mindset. Um, two, it's a mindset that has been baking for about 10 years now and seems to finally be gaining some critical mass as like, hey, this is a direction we need to move in, um, both ideologically and in implementation. Um, I think one of the other big areas that um, folks are looking at is the fusion of zero trust to all these different technologies and how they play in. I think the Twitter narrative is a real great real world example that just happened to happen, happened to happen. That's a great phrase. Happened to happen during the virus um, and illustrates this point quite well. Um, I think some of the other, you know, paradigm shifts that we didn't talk about on this show, I think we talked about more in the last show about um, the tools you do to be, uh, you know, effective remotely, the collaboration tools, the video conferencing, um, a more rapid acceleration of, of, adopting the clouds that you can support those types of tools in your organization. I think those are important trends. Um, I think the ones we talked about tonight specifically are the more security relevant trends, whereas those other ones are more broader, like what are the technologies that are Mm -hmm. shifting because of COVID? Um, 
So hopefully this provides more of a specific filter on the security aspects of, of where we're seeing computing shift during um, pandemic. And, and I think it's fair to say, looking at, you know, both of those aspects, we're seeing stuff that's going to be permanent changes, long-term changes. And, you know, like you and I say, six months feels like two years in pandemic time, just in our own personal lives. Um, I think the security industry is also seeing that on some interesting scales. So there are some interesting parallels to draw from it. We'll have to, uh, oh, for sure. And I think we're just at the beginning of where I think we're going to learn a ton of stuff. Sounds like in the next X number of days, weeks, months, whatever it is, as, as people slowly return to work, some won't, some will. The infrastructure is going to look, I think, a little bit different when we go back. I think there's some IT administrators who've been like, oh, do we really need all of this? Can I deploy some of it forward-facing to make sure I'm I'm shoring that, that bit up? Christian, uh, maybe for a future episode, I have seen recently a couple of deep fakes on video on yeah. YouTube of like Star Wars, let's just say, or <laughs> they implemented um, like the Carrie Fisher CGI or even the... Um, oh, what was his name? He was, uh, um, Tarkin on anyways, the, where they've used CGI just in the last two years. And now they're using deep fake technology yeah. on the video. Are you talking about Admiral Tarkin in the, yes. uh, the spinoff yes. series? Yeah. Yes. And, and, um, yeah, the CGI was pretty good, but I've seen some deep fakes of that and Carrie Fisher. I've seen what it would be because it, uh, on, um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was originally supposed to be Tom Selleck and not Harrison Ford. And so they took some t Tom Selleck of that era and put his face on Harrison Ford in those movie clips. Mm. And Christian, you can't tell. Like, you can't tell at all. It's like, I've always, I mean, we've been talking about deep fake for a while. And in an audio, it's even easier. But man, it's getting so... You know, in some of these areas where we have started using vi the visual representation of things, I think we're going to have to come up with some kind of some kind of personal signature that says that indeed, you know, how we, we made yep. the uh, we made politicians say, I endorse this message or whatever they used to say on the advertisements. Right. They'd mm -hmm. have to come in on their own voice. Yeah. I, this blows all that out of the out of the water. I mean, yeah. it's scary. It's yeah. scary how good it is. The, the equivalent of uh, Twitter verified or something. Um, something. For your I audio mean, I, video. Maybe. Like, I mean, think about it. Do I need my own certificate? Like, that authenticates me in the audio, in the written audio and, and video space that says, no, like, that's not, it doesn't have my, like, what if my image, it, I had to have a certificate, a security certificate on it to say, Somebody deep faked it. No, nope, you didn't have the, you didn't have the credentials mm -hmm. to make that. So I don't know. It's, dude, it's scary good. Like I, I again, I've heard this was coming, and I was like, yeah, how good can it be? It's better than any CGI. Oh yeah. And so there's going to be some, I think, some ramifications for that. Well, we'll try. Uh, We'll try not to go four months, but I always say that and we end up doing it anyways. <sighs> we, uh, if you made it all the way to the end here, we appreciate you and listening to Cyber Frontiers. Don't forget if you're a home, if you're listening to Cyber Frontiers and you're a Home Gadget Geeks listener, December 3rd, Christian is back on Home Gadget Geeks, our 10 
year anniversary of doing that. Um, Christian, I go back, listen to the first one. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's not the greatest, but uh, it, it is okay. A couple of reminders, uh, Cyber Frontiers and Home Gadget Geeks and the entire AverageGuy.tv network powered by Maple Grove Partners. We mentioned in the very beginning, secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. And if you're a podcaster, even better because it's it's web and media hosting together for as little as 10 bucks a month. Christian's got a great plan for you. Check out maplegrovepartners.com. If you have suggestions for stuff, I just suggested we talk about deep fakes. So you could too send us an email, Jim at theaverageguy.tv or Christian, really send it to Christian, Christian at theaverageguy.tv. And uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you or take those suggestions. I'll be honest, when you suggest it, Christian is on more. So maybe we just need a few more suggestions to start piling up I'll um, do it. there as well. As well. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. If you enjoyed this, please share it, even though we're both in red. Maybe you can just share the audio version going forward. Thanks for coming out and uh, appreciate you guys doing that tonight. If you're in the, if you're listening to the live show, maybe hang around for a little bit of the post show. That was a good one. Good night.